Amen. I'm, you can be seated and I'll ask you, I'll invite you to turn in your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I uh, want to start with uh, some scriptures uh, beginning in verse 24 down through verse 27. The, um, the seventh chapter of Matthew is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is considered by most uh, scholars as the, the greatest and finest of Jesus' teachings uh, at any one given time. And he talks about the, the, it gives us the Beatitudes, it gives us information about the Lord's Prayer, it gives us a lot of things that, uh, that church doctrine has been established and, and made upon. But uh, it seems to me that Jesus intends things differently than, uh, or Jesus in, in his ministry, he operated in a different way than religious scholars seem to look back at, you know. I mean, it's, um, it's one thing for us to, um, well, take your own life, for example. Maybe this is the best way to explain it. Your own life, you face situations, you face circumstances, and you deal with those circumstances based on whatever knowledge you have, whether it's knowledge of the Word, whether it's experience in life or whatever. You're not thinking about, okay, how is this going to be looked back upon? But then after the fact, you can look back at the things that you did and situations that you encountered and, and actions that you took, and you can judge those things Based on the results, you can judge those things based on uh, how, how, it, how it appears. A whole set of different criteria, perhaps, that, uh, that they can be judged by. Well, religious scholars judge the Sermon on the Mount by looking back at the eloquence, looking back at the continuity. Jesus is just telling people about God. He's not sitting there thinking, okay, this is going to be recorded, so I've got to make sure to say this just right. And as such, everything that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount that the, that the religious world says is so great and so wonderful comes down to this one final thought. And that begins in chapter 7 and verse 24. He says, therefore, therefore is always a result of something that's come before. He says, therefore, because of the other things that he said, because of the great eloquent truths of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. I will liken him unto a wise man. He's talking about everything is, is encapsulated. Everything is summarized into be a doer of the word. And he says, if you are a doer of the word, you are a wise man. Now, what's a wise man like? There's a lot of things that the world considers wisdom that the Bible does not. There's a lot of actions and a lot of positions, a lot of activities that the world says, oh, yeah, that's a real wise way to operate. And the Bible says that's foolish. The world says it's wise to pull all your money together and put it, to, put it aside, buy gold or whatever they want to say is the thing to do today. The Bible says be free and give. Well, you're going to have to decide which one is real wisdom. Well, one will put you over and the other will just set you up. So Jesus is saying, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken, into, uh, I will liken him unto a wise man. Now, what's the wise man like? Jesus is going to tell us. He's like a wise man that builds his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. He's saying very specifically, if you become a doer of the word, your house will not fall no matter what storms of life come. Now, the world can't offer you that. The world can say your chances are good. If you do this, then you'll be prepared for that. But they, come, they can't promise you. There's nothing in the world. There's nothing in this world system that can guarantee that you will not fall. But the word makes that guarantee for you in your life. 
Jesus turns around and says, here's the other side. He says, and whosoever, or everyone, verse 26, and everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. Hearing must not be enough then, is it? We could just as easily say, and everybody that goes to church but doesn't do the word is like this guy. It's not just hearing, it's letting the hearing make you a doer. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man. Well, what's a foolish man like Jesus? He's like a man that builds his house upon the sand. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Where is the sand? It's on the edge of the seashore. Can you imagine the view you'd have by building your house on the sand? I mean, you'd be able to open your windows and hear the waves. I mean, we're talking vacation paradise in appearance. And a lot of folks have built their lives to look like they're on top. But if they're not doing the word, they're one storm away from falling. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew. Notice it's the same storm. Same rain, same wind, same flood come to both individuals. The rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And great was the fall of it. And it doesn't, even, it doesn't just say and it fell. It indicates that the fall was such that everybody knew about that one. And great was the fall of it. I want to talk to you this morning about dealing with critical circumstances. Because the storms of life, the Bible says very clearly, the, the storms of life are going to come to everybody. There are times where you're going to have critical circumstances. There are times where it's going to look like it's now or never. It's up, you know, this is our last chance. Describe it any way you want to. But there are going to be times where it looks like this is the make or break point for us. What do you do in those times? Now, folks, I want to tell you something. The Bible tells you to be prepared for that time to come. It doesn't tell you that if you'll be a doer of the word, those times won't come. It tells you if you'll be a doer of the word, when those times come, you'll stand. So a lot of people have the idea, and, and, and in my opinion, you judge it for yourself, but in my opinion, a lot of faith teachers, so-called faith teachers, teach it in such a way that if you believe God, you won't have the trouble that the world has. That's not really what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. You'll have some of the trouble that the world doesn't have. Good news, huh? Well, it shouldn't be anything that discourages us because if you know the word puts you over, who cares what the trouble is? If God be for us, who can be against us? What do I care what trouble comes as long as I've got God on my side and know that I'm not going to fall? That's the truth of the Bible. That's what the Bible's trying to tell us. So you're going to have trouble. Folks, you're going to have economic trouble in these last days. Well, Pastor Mike, we're already having economic trouble. Well, it's just getting started. You better put the word of God in practice in your life so that you can overcome the trouble that's ahead. Because it is not going to get better no matter who wins the election. Don't give me that look. I've been praying for two weeks. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, you were talking about things regarding the election. We thought that if you were saying since a Christian can't vote for the Democratic platform like gay marriage and, and abortion, then that means the Republicans are going to win and that means everything's going to be better. I never said that. I did say that a Christian that lives by the word cannot 
cannot say that he's living by the Bible and vote for somebody that, that supports abortion and gay marriage. Because the Bible's true no matter what politicians say. Bible's true no matter what political affiliation you are. Now, I'm not telling you to change parties. You do whatever you think you ought to do. I don't have to answer for you. I'll have to answer for me. And I have no doubt that the church will have to answer for God, to God, for what they've done. Regarding politics and regarding every other area of life. But that doesn't mean the Republicans are the answer. In case there's any, any, any confusion about that, let me make it very clear. The Republicans are not the answer. And depending, where, depending on where we are on God's timeline, it may not make a hill of beans worth a difference who's in office. There may be things that are in motion now that it won't matter who wins. I still have a responsibility to vote according to the Bible. But that doesn't mean that the election is going to fix the problem. Folks, there's only one answer, and that's Jesus. And there's only one method of success or method of, of uh, victory, and that is the Word. That's where the answer is for you as an individual. Yeah, but how's God going to save America? God's not interested in saving America. He's interested in saving Americans. Just like He's interested in saving Europeans. Just like He's interested in, uh, in, in saving Iranians. Just like he's interested in, in saving every other person on the earth. But that comes through the word, not through politics. Okay, that was all free. I didn't intend to say any of that. <laughs> but the fact is, you're going to deal with critical circumstances in your life. What are you going to do? So many times when we face critical circumstances, that's where the church reaches out and cries and prays and says, Oh God, you've got to do something now. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 9. Let me show you an example of somebody that did that. Now, God's the same as he was in the Old Testament. He was the same, he's the same as he was when Jesus was here on the earth, right? He never changes. So if the principles that Jesus show us regarding a situation that is similar to what we face today, if he shows us the same, if the, the principle shows, uh, if the principle from the time that Jesus was here on the earth shows us what to do, then the principle's got to be the same today for victory. Here was a man that brought his son to Jesus. His son was possessed of the devil. Apparently, he had some kind of epileptic fit, some kind of seizure. We don't know exactly what it was. The Bible doesn't say other than, than he was demonically influenced. And as a result, it tried to destroy this boy's life. Well, this man comes to where Jesus is supposed to be, but Jesus is at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's got Peter, James, and John with him, and he's transfigured on the mountain. And here's where his, his, his clothing turns white as snow. Here's where the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is where Peter speaks up and says, Jesus, this is great. Let's build tents here. And God says, shut up, this is my son, listen to him. That's my paraphrase, but basically that's what he says. Immediately following that. By the way, you'll find that there were two times in Jesus' ministry where a voice spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And immediately following that, Jesus met the devil. So many times we have the idea that we want to live on the mountaintop of God's presence. Oh, we get in church services, we get in some kind of experience, maybe a prayer time, whatever. And it's just so glorious, it's just so great. We want to run to another service, we want to run to another crusade, we want to run to another meeting where they've got the power of God, the, the glory of God is, is manifest. Folks, the example that we see in Jesus' life is as soon as that happens, he comes down from the mountain and meets the devil head on. You can't live on the mountaintop. Now, you can take the glory of God and the authority of God with you down the mountain, but you can't live on the mountaintop. 
It's so funny to me how Christians get so excited. Oh, are you going to this crusade? Are you going to this meeting? Are you going to this seminar? Oh, they've got the power of God going there. And I'm thinking, what good is that going to do you if you don't bring it home? But you get people, you get Christians in, in Southern California, charismatics are the worst. Cruisomatics. They cruise from one meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting, whoever's got the best advertising about the, the, the new power of God that's going on. Folks, it's the word that puts you over. It's not the experience of a crusade or a meeting or a service or anything else. Church is not meant to be the place where you come and live. It's meant to be the place where you come, get tanked up, and go out and live. So Jesus meets the devil. This guy brings his, his son to where Jesus is, and only nine of the disciples are left because Jesus and the other three aren't back from the Mount of Transfiguration yet. And these other disciples who have been given authority over all the power of the devil, Jesus gave them authority over the devil's power. He gave them authority to cure sickness and disease. This man brings his son to them, and they can't do anything about it. Now, they could, but they didn't realize what the hindrance was. So Jesus shows up. He sees a crowd of people gathered by. He sees the scribes and the Pharisees there. That's never a good sign. So Jesus walks in the middle of the crowd and asks the scribes and the Pharisees, assuming they're the ones causing the trouble, they usually are. So he asks the, the scribes and the Pharisees, what are you questioning with them? What's your problem? I'm here to rescue my disciples. Who knows what they've said to, up till now? What are you questioning with them? And then the man steps forward and he says, Master, I brought my son. Luke tells us it was his only son. Now, as a parent, you can relate to this. He says, I brought my son, my only son. And he's possessed with the devil, and oftentimes the devil tries to throw him into the fire to destroy him and throw him into the water to destroy him. And your disciples tried to cast the devil out of him, but they couldn't do anything about it. And here's the man's position. He says, but if you can do anything about it, have mercy on me and help me. Well, God's full of mercy, isn't he? The Bible says the mercy of the Lord endures forever. God's God of mercy. It seems to be that he's saying the right thing. Have mercy on me and help me. The problem is what he first said. The problem is what so many Christians, what so many people in critical circumstances do. Here's the mistake that keeps them from receiving the answer that they need. The, this guy's position was, Jesus, if you can do anything, have mercy on me and help me. In other words, his focus is on God's ability to do. Now, that would seem like a good place to put your focus, wouldn't it? Because the Bible says with God, nothing is impossible. All things are possible with God. So focusing your attention on God's ability, that would really seem like the, the right and appropriate thing, wouldn't it? In some situations, it is. But in critical circumstances, it's not. Because Jesus changes his focus. If this guy's going to get any help, Jesus is going to have to turn him completely around. His focus is on what can God do? In the middle of my trouble. Jesus turns his focus and says this in verse 23. Jesus said unto him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Jesus is changing his situation. He's changing this man's thinking. He's changing this man's focus from this is an impossible situation for me. Maybe Jesus can do something. Jesus turns that focus to Anything is possible to the person that believes. In other words, Jesus changes his focus to faith, and faith is always based on the word. Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. You can't have faith without the word of God. So Jesus, who wants to show mercy to him, 
who is full of compassion. Jesus is trying to get the man's answer to him. And the way that he does that is by shifting his focus to what God might be able to do, which is where most Christians pray. Oh, God, if you can do anything about this, do something and help me. God, turn this situation around. Jesus changes the focus from that to what can I believe? What can I believe? And Jesus gets this man his answer by changing his focus to believing something instead of looking at what God might be able to do. You realize why the, why the church world, by and large, is, uh, is, 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 is as powerless or shows as little power? I hate to say powerless because God gave us power. But do you realize that the church world, well, let me ask this this way. First of all, we'll establish a point of agreement. Can we all agree that the modern day church seems to be without power? Anybody want to argue that? I mean, there may be pockets of, of power that's, uh, that's manifest, but by and large, the church world sees themselves and the, and the unsaved world certainly sees the church as powerless. Why? Does God have less power now than he did in the Old Testament when he was stopping the moon and the sun and, and parting seas and doing stuff like that? Does he have less power now than he did in Jesus' day when he was healing sickness and disease and casting out devils and walking on the water and multiplying loaves and fishes? Has God changed anything? Has anything changed on God's end? Well, then why does the church seem to be so powerless in the modern day world? Because of the same reason that this guy is showing. Because the church world, by and large, looks over at God. God, what can you do about this? Instead of focusing on what Jesus said, what can you believe? What can you believe? What can you believe? Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 38. This man winds up saying, Jesus... Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, that doesn't sound like a great statement of faith to me. It does show a mustard seed of faith. In other words, he takes a baby step toward faith. He says, Lord, I believe. Faith is always exhibited by the words of your mouth. And so he says, Lord, I believe. Then he says, but help my unbelief. So what is he saying? He's saying, Lord, I choose to believe, but I've got a lot of unbelief. Well, belief and unbelief don't mix together. It's like oil and water. You're not supposed to have them together. How does that work? Very simply, in my opinion, you judge it for yourself, but in my opinion, I believe this man's saying, Lord, I'm willing to believe, but boy, my head's given me a lot of trouble with this. I know from my own experience that some of the greatest experience, some of the greatest results I've gotten in faith have come when my head was screaming at me, it's not going to work. Well, that doesn't seem to be the hindrance because the Bible says faith is of the heart, not the head. So many Christians who don't understand how faith works and what faith is think that when their mind says uh, words of doubt, when their mind is thinking thoughts of doubt, that must mean I'm not in faith. It doesn't mean that at all. It means the devil is attacking your mind. Faith is of the heart. Faith is what you choose to express. You say what the word of God says, regardless of the thoughts that are coming against your mind. I believe that's what this guy is describing. Okay, Lord, I'm supposed to believe something. All right, I choose to believe. I believe you can help me. I believe you can do something about this. I believe you can. But boy, my head is dealing fits. Dealing me fits. I believe that's what he's saying. Jesus takes the seed of faith through his words. Lord, I believe. And he turns the situation around. He delivers his son. Now, Isaiah chapter 38 shows us a good example of this. It's, uh, it's uh, the story of uh, Isaiah. And it says... Beginning in verse 1, Isaiah 38, verse 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set your house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. 
Now, when God tells you you're going to die, that seems to be pretty serious. I mean, this is not the doctor saying, I'll give you six months. This is God saying, get ready. You're going to die. But Hezekiah does something. Now, remember what Jesus said where we started over in Matthew chapter 7? He said, whoso heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, he's like a wise man that builds his house on a rock. He said, the floods, the rains descended, the winds blow, and the floods come, floods rise up. But that doesn't cause the house to fall. Hezekiah is the one that's in charge here. Now, for some, I realize that's a blasphemous statement. Because they're going to say, yeah, but God said he's going to die. So if God says something's going to happen, that's it. And how many Christians do you know that think that way? Once God says something, once it's the will of God, since he says it, it must be his will. If that's the will of God, that's it. There's nothing you can do to change it. But Hezekiah changes it. So this idea that what, once something is the will of God, it's going to be no matter what, can't be right then, is it? Hezekiah does something about this situation. He turns his face to the wall. He turns his face to the wall. Verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Now, folks, I've got to tell you something. There's got to be something more than just praying and crying. Because I can show you Christians by the hundreds that pray and cry and don't get answers. It's got to be something more than just crying and praying. Got to be. What is taking place here? Well, first of all, Hezekiah reminds God of two things. That he's walked before him in truth. Anytime you see the word truth, whether it's in the Bible or whether it's in the world, my first thought is the word of God. Because Jesus said that the word of God is truth. It didn't say, he didn't just say that it's true. It is. He said it is truth. It is truth. That means the truth doesn't change. I know the world's idea is the truth is relative. What's true for you may not be true for me. And so forth. That's hogwash. The truth is the truth no matter who thinks what. The truth is always the truth. So when the Bible says that the word of God is truth, my first thought is when he says I walked before you in truth, that means I've done it as well as I could in walking in the word. And notice what he said. He said my heart is perfect towards you. It does not say that I've been a perfect person. You read the story of Hezekiah and you can see a lot of places where he messed up. You can see places where he disobeyed God. Well, how is a guy that, would, that disobeyed God then going to be able to say that he walked perfectly before the Lord? Because the Bible says that God looks on the heart, not the outward appearance. What the Bible is telling us here about Hezekiah and what Hezekiah is saying to the Lord is, I've done everything I've, I could in what I knew to do to walk before you according to the truth. Do you realize there are things that you do that are wrong? Things that you look at, look back in your life at that were mistakes and that were sins or whatever they were. But because your heart was right in what you were doing or trying to do at the time, God counts it to your credit and not against you. Do you realize that? So many times people get caught up in sins, the past sins of their life, and they let it rob them of the things, the blessings of God today. My, um, Micah, I think it's Micah chapter 7, verse, about verse 19, something like that. It says that God buries our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. One, of, uh, one statement that I uh, read that Corey Ten Boone said, uh, dear sister of God, long, long ago, that uh, suffered some terrible things during World War II and so forth. She said this. She said, since God buries our sins in the sea of forgetfulness, you shouldn't go fishing for them. 
I love that. Isn't that good? But we all do. Human nature is we go fishing for our sins. Human nature is we try to remember back and, and, and maybe for the right reason we may go back and try to repent for them again. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry that I messed up in that, in that way. I'm so sorry that I, that I, that I made those, mis- those mistakes. I'm so sorry for this, that, and the other. And we try to bring that back up to God. And what that does is it robs you of authority. What it does is it robs you of the ability to stand before God with confidence. Because God forgets it. God f- uh, forgives it. Then God forgets it. It says he separates you as far as from your sin as far as the east is from the west. And then we try to dredge it up and remind him. Well, what are you reminding him of? Of something that's already been separated from you? But human nature is that that's what we do. But God, if you'll listen to him, God will always bring you back to the point that I look on your heart, not according to your action. See, you can do the right thing for the right reason and it be counted towards your, towards your credit. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason and it'll be counted against you. In the, in the same way on the opposite side, you can do the wrong thing but have the right heart and God counts it to your credit. I can show you a lot of people that are paying their tithes that it doesn't work for them because their heart's not right toward it. But they're doing the right thing, yeah, but not from their heart. And God always looks on the heart. You remember in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when uh, uh, Samuel the prophet goes to select the next king, Saul has, has transgressed against the Lord, and so God says, I need another king. So he goes to, to uh, Jesse's house. And Jesse's first son, Eliab, comes in. All, all uh, Samuel knows is that he's going down to anoint the next king. Samuel's first son comes in, and man, he looks like a king. He's handsome, he's tall, he's got everything about it. And Samuel says within himself, he says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. In other words, this has got to be the guy. And the Lord says, Don't look on his countenance, nor the height of his stature. It doesn't matter how good looking he is. It doesn't matter how tall he is, God says. He says, For man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. And I've rejected him. Well, one by one, his sons come in. Every time, the Spirit of the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, Nope, he's not the one. Nope, he's not the one. Nope, he's not the one. Finally, Samuel says to Jesse, he says, You got any more boys? Been through the whole bunch. And Jesse, who apparently doesn't think much of the last one, says, Well, I've got one other, but we didn't even call him in from the field. We knew you were looking for a king, so it couldn't be him. So Jesse says, well, I'm not going to sit down to eat till he comes in. So finally they get David in there. David's the runt. He's the red-headed, freckle-faced one that doesn't look like a king. And God says, he's the guy. Isn't it amazing how God can take things that the world thinks don't look like much and make something out of it? I take great comfort in that. <laughs> Truly. You should too. You should look in the mirror every morning and say, God's made me a king. I know it's hard to believe, but he did. So, folks, it's all about the heart. It's all about what the attitude of your heart is. Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and says, Lord, I walked according to the truth. That doesn't mean he never missed it. It means his heart was right in putting the word first in his life. Don't let the devil condemn you for where you've missed it. Instead, turn it around and say, at least I was trying to act on the word. He'll show you where you fell short. Oh, you missed it. You said you were the righteousness of God in Christ, but look what you did. Well, at least I said it. That's what the Bible says to do. You know, the game of golf has always fascinated me. I have, I, I'm a terrible golfer. 
The reason I'm a terrible golfer is because if I miss a shot, I keep remembering that shot I missed. But golfers have this thing about them. Good golfers are, are incredible. Professional golfers, they are the best friends in the, they are their best friends in the world. It's amazing. You can listen to these guys after a, a round. They may have shot a terrible round, and they'll find something good that they did. Well, I was putting real well today. You've got to be kidding. You were hitting it in the parking lot. You're talking about putting good. But they find something good about what they did, and that attitude helps them excel. If Christians would gain that same understanding and realize to give themselves a break, to be their own best friends when it comes to walking in the Word, they'd find out God's on their side. Instead, they listen to the devil. Yeah, well, and and other golfers, bless their hearts, other golfers, they come in and they say, yeah, well, you shot a great round today. (laughs) He said, yeah, isn't it an amazing thing? I wasn't hitting the ball very well at all. Now, I can relate to that guy. He got lucky and scored well, but when I was playing terrible. That's the way it is for most Christians. Even when they come out on top, they think, yeah, but I did all these things wrong. I missed it here and I missed it there and I could have done better over there. Folks, give yourself a break. If God was looking for a way to snuff you out, it would have happened a long, long time ago. If he was looking for a reason to fry you, you would be gone. You do realize that, don't you? God's on your side. Well, why not be on your own side then? So God rejected the ones that looked right because he looked on the heart. Now back to Hezekiah. What did it mean? What does it mean when it says Hezekiah turned his face to the wall? It says he wept sore. That shows earnestness here. It shows that he was serious about his position with God. And he said, I've walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart until this day. What does it mean then when he turned his face to the wall? Can't be just praying. Can't be just crying. Can't be just saying, you know, Lord, I've done some good things in my life. This isn't right. So many times Christians are crying out saying, Lord, this isn't fair. They think God's causing the problem instead of realizing the devil's their enemy. And so they cry out to God and say, God, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? And God's waiting for you to turn your face to the wall. I want you to notice, God doesn't change this. Hezekiah does. He turns his face to the wall. What does that mean? That means he turned his face away from man. The man that's there is is a prophet, Isaiah. One of the greatest prophets in all the old covenant. He doesn't look to Isaiah and say, Isaiah, pray for me. Isaiah, you're in contact with God. You do something about this. Make this change. He doesn't. He turns his face away from Isaiah. He turns his face away from man. He turns his face away from his symptoms. He turns his face away from his circumstances. And he turns his face to the wall where he can see one and only one thing, and that's God. He's doing the same thing that Jesus told the man, the father in Mark chapter 9 to do. It's not a matter of what I can do, Jesus said. If you can believe, all things are possible. What happens when Isaiah does that, or when Hezekiah does that? Well, the word of the Lord comes back to Isaiah. Word of the Lord comes back to Isaiah, and God said to Isaiah, even before he gets out of the courtyard, verse 5, it says, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord God of David, Thy father, I have heard thy prayer, and I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years. Now, some people will see this. Some people look at this, uh, this story, and they say, Well, yeah, see, it shows the Bible's full of contradictions. Not at all. God is showing Hezekiah what is going to happen under the present circumstances. This is simply God telling Hezekiah, if you leave this thing alone, if you don't take action, here's what's going to happen. Set your house in order because you're going to die. It doesn't mean he has to die. Clearly he doesn't have to die because Hezekiah changes it. But only Hezekiah can change it. 
Jesus said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, he'll be like the wise man that builds his house upon the rock. And no matter what rain falls, no matter how hard the wind blows, no matter how high the floods rise, this man's house will not fall because it's built on the rock. Only Hezekiah can change this. Isaiah can't do it. Only Hezekiah can change this. And the only way he can do it is by turning his face to the wall. Turning his face to the wall. You know, the Bible's full of examples like this. In the Old Testament, it doesn't use the same terminology, but full of examples like this. And uh, uh, you remember when Moses went up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he came back with the tablets of stone, and he sees the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf. He gets mad. He breaks the tables of stone. He comes down tries to find out what's going on. Aaron's the man in charge. Aaron's his brother. He's the one that he left in charge. He said, Aaron, what are you doing? And Aaron says, well, we saw you go up into the mountain, and there was thunder and lightnings and all kinds of things, earthquakes and stuff like that going on. We just thought you were dead. We thought God brought you out here, put you on a mountain, and, and just kill you. So the people came to me and said, we need something to replace Moses. So I said, bring me your gold. We threw the gold in the fire, and a, a golden calf came out. We, we, who knew? That's his excuse. Not that we made it, not that we fashioned it, not that we created this thing that just happens to be one of the gods of Egypt that we just came out of. We just threw it in the fire and it happened. What you going to do? Well, everybody knows what you do when a golden calf comes out of the fire. You take off your clothes, you have an orgy. So that's what they did. Read the story. That's what they did. So Moses recognizes that the sin of the people is going to cost them. And so a plague goes through the, the camp. 3,000 people die that day. And then Moses goes before God when he sees the plague. He goes before God and he says, God, these people have sinned a great sin against you, but you've got to forgive them. But if you want, then blot my name out with them too. What's he doing? He's turning his face to the wall. He's turning his face to where he sees God and only God. He's putting his, himself in God's hands for the, the sin of the people. He's saying, if you won't forgive them, then blot my name out too. You see another example of this in, I, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. David is uh, leading the armies of Israel. He's not yet been made king, but he's leading uh, the, the rebel bands, his mighty men. And boy, they are whipping up on the enemy. But they go after, uh, out to one battle and come back and they find out that the enemy has raided their camp. They've taken all their stuff. They've taken all their children. They've taken their wives. They've taken everybody that was left there. And so, of course, you know what happens then. The people rebelled against David and said, we're going to kill you. You're the, one, you're the one that's brought us all these great victories, but this has happened and you're the one in charge, so must be your fault. And the Bible says, but David encouraged himself before the Lord his God. What's he doing? He's turning his face to the wall. He's turning away from the circumstance. He's turning away from what the people want. He, he turns him, his, himself away from the threat. And he sees only God. Folks, do you realize that the key to your victory in every situation is your ability to see God? It's an amazing thing to me. You get so many Christians, they, could, they wouldn't see God if he walked in the room wearing a red hat. They can't see God in anything. They are so impossibility-minded that they don't see God in any area of life. But the key is to being able to see God in everything. In everything. In every situation. 
You know, this is not just true in the Bible. It's also true in church history. There are stories in, in uh, church historical records. For example, uh, 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 oh, what's the guy's name? I'm trying to say Augustine. Is that his name? Um, one, of the early, one of the early church fathers. Anyway, there's a, there's a historical record of this guy where, um, uh, where he went in uh, to this man. There was a, a, a rich nobleman of Carthage many, many years ago in the early, well, uh, I think Augustine, if I remember right, he was in either from 100 to 200 A.D., something like that. So it was the first generation of the church, or first century of the church. And, uh, and anyway, there was this nobleman of Carthage, and he'd had many operations, but none of them had been successful, and now he was facing another one. But the, but the medical doctors and, and uh, the ones that were about to perform this thing, they said, it's not going to do any good either. We don't really hold up any hope for you. But he was, a, he was Christian. He was a member of the church. And so Augustine goes in before this guy, and as soon as he walks in the room, his report, his, his uh, diary, his, uh, you know, the, the uh, well, I don't know what you'd call it other than diary, the, the journal that he had about the story, is that this guy, as soon as he walked in the room, this guy falls on the floor prostrate. And he said it was very unusual. It might have been the power of God that put this guy under. There's no way to know. He doesn't say. But he said that he began to sob and, and, and cry uncontrollably. He began to cry out and pray to God. Just pour out his soul. He's face down on the floor. Doesn't say a word to him. He doesn't say pray for me. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't say anything. He's just crying out before God about his situation. And, and I mean, it's, it's obvious to Augustine that this guy is, is earnest in his, uh, in his desires. By the way, both with Hezekiah, this guy, and some of the other stories that we see in the Bible... You remember uh, James chapter 5 and verse 16? The last part of the verse says this. It says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I like the Amplified on this because it says, The heartfelt, the continued heartfelt prayer of a righteous man turns to the advantage. Uh, no, wait a minute. I'm, I'm confusing two different things. Amplified says, The continued heartfelt prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. But that word... Uh, uh, the word that's uh, um, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That word avails means to turn to the advantage. It means it's effectual. It means it's effective. It means it's successful. Well, what is he doing? He's praying fervently. He's crying out before God. You know as well as I do that there are prayers that you pray, Oh, Lord, do this, and by tomorrow afternoon you forgot and you prayed. That's not a heartfelt prayer. That was one of those, Lord, make it comfortable. But there are other prayers, things that are, that are dear to you, things that are close to your heart. You pray those things and hang on to them. And the more you pray them, the stronger they get on the inside of you. Right? Well, that's what the Bible's saying. It's saying the continued heartfelt prayer, the effectual fervent prayer, a prayer that's really from your heart, not just some, from your head. Oh, Lord, I need an extra $100 so I can go to the movies. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that's from your heart, something that means something to you. That kind of prayer will turn to the advantage. When you base it on the word, when you make it effective by basing it on the word, this guy's crying out to God. He's pouring out his heart before God. He's sobbing uncontrollably. Augustine turns to the Lord and just says within himself, he doesn't even say this out loud. He says, Lord, you've got to hear the prayers of this guy. It looks like he's going to die praying. That's how effectual it was. That's how fervent it was. And when the doctors came in a few minutes later, to check this guy's bandage or change his bandage or whatever the situation was, they found that the tissues were healed. His report later on was that Augustine brought the power of God into the room to, to bring healing and miracle, uh, a miracle work of healing to his body. 
Augustine never even prayed. He didn't lay hands on him. He didn't pray for him. He didn't do a thing. Just like Isaiah. Isaiah didn't pray for Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the one that did the work. Isaiah leaves the room after God says, set your house in order, you're going to die. Under the present circumstances, here's how it's going to be. Then when Hezekiah changes the circumstances from his point of view, then before Isaiah can even get out of the courtyard, God sends him back and says, tell him I'll give him 15 more years. If you look at the historical record of Hezekiah's rule, he lived more than 15 years longer. He still changed it after that. There's another story of Martin Luther who had some guy that, um, uh, that was helping him in ministry. He was an assistant in ministry, and he was uh, very much like Epaphroditus that uh, the Bible tells us about in, um, uh, in the New Testament where it says Epaphroditus was sick unto death because he had worked himself, literally had worked himself to death. He hadn't, hadn't given consideration to his body and had overworked himself doing the work of God, trying to help Paul and his company. Well, this guy was in the same situation. He was sick and at the point of death. And, uh, and, and so Martin Luther goes into the room where this guy is and, uh, and sees him in such a desperate situation. It's a critical situation. If God doesn't do something now, it, it, he's gone. And so Luther looks at the guy, sees his condition. He's in such a weakened condition, he can't hardly even pray. He can't hardly even speak. So Luther walks over to the window. He turns his face to the wall, literally. He walks over to the window and he just says very quietly, he quotes every scripture on healing that he didn't think of. He repeats everything, every promise of the Bible, uh, every promise in the Bible that God made concerning long life, concerning health, concerning well-being. He, th- he quotes everything that he can possibly think of and then says this. He says, Lord, if you don't answer this prayer now, I don't know if I can ever trust you again. The man was instantly healed. Instantly healed. Now, you're going to hear, people are, some people are going to hear that and they're going to say, oh, that's a great way to pray. Okay, Lord, if you don't answer this one, I can't ever trust you again. And they're being like kids throwing up little candy prayers. But when the word's on the, in the midst of you, when the word is a part of your heart, when you're a doer of the word, and you've based your life upon the word, that's when it works. You know something Charles Finney said? Charles G. Finney, which was the, who is, to this day, the greatest uh, recognized revivalist in the history of the church. There were more people that were converted under his ministry that stayed with walking in fellowship with God than any other people we have record of. And this was even before they ever started keeping real good records. Finney said this. He said argumentative prayers are the best kind. Now, he was a lawyer. You know why he got results with God? Because he would argue his case based on the word. In other words, he would turn his face to the wall. He'd turn his face away from the circumstance. He'd turn his face away from the situation, of, from his feelings. He'd turn his, his face away from everything that was going on around him. And instead, he would look at the word and say, Lord, here's what your word says. I agree with him. Argumentative prayers are the best kind of prayers. Now, some people will misunderstand this and they'll say, Oh, you're trying to argue with God. You can't change the will of God. What did Hezekiah? In strictest sense, he did not because God wasn't saying it's my will for you to die. He's saying unless you do something, you're going to die. So Hezekiah changes it. Well, why, how do we know what the will of God is for our lives then? Well, God's already said with long life, I'll satisfy you and show you my salvation. Apparently, Hezekiah wasn't satisfied. Psalm 91 says very specifically, with the last verse of the chapter of the, of the psalm, it says, with long life, I'll satisfy you and show you my salvation. Well, how long is long life? Until you're satisfied. Argumentative prayers are the best kind of prayer. The best kind of prayers to pray. 
Turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 43. We'll close with this. Isaiah 43. Notice in verse 25, God is speaking. First person through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions and, and uh, for mine own sake and will not remember your sins. You may think God forgives you for your sake, but he doesn't. The Bible says that God forgives you for his sake. Now, who does that put the burden of love on? If he was forgiving us for our sakes, then we would say, well, yeah, okay, then that means we're bound to love God because of what he's done for us. But that's not what it says. It says God forgives you for his sake. In other words, he loves you so much he had to come up with a way to forgive you. You didn't deserve it. So he had to come up with a way that was apart from you because you'd mess it up. He'd come up with a way that was apart from you so that he could forgive you because that's how much he loves you. And yet the church says, oh, if I just knew, God, if I just knew you loved me. It's just a, such a heavy burden here. If we just knew you loved us. He forgave you for his sake. You know the thing that makes God a good father? The thing that makes God a good father is, the, is, is, in my opinion, the same thing, the same principle that is the greatest test for us to be good parents here on the earth. God doesn't change his truth for you. And yet that, in my own experience anyway, I don't know how it works for you, but in my own experience, that is the greatest temptation for me as a parent to change the truth for my children because I love them so much. But the Bible is full of people that changed the truth for the children. It brought disaster. You remember Moses? Moses talks to God in the burning bush. God says, go to before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. What does Moses do? Well, finally, after he argues and makes all these excuses, God finally gives him everything he wants. His last excuse is, I can't talk. I'm a stutterer. I can't talk. And God says, okay, I'll give you Aaron. That worked out real well. But God gave him what he needed to give him the confidence to go. And then the Bible says he went down from the mountain. He went and told his wife. And they, got, they saddled their donkeys. And they started on their way. And then the angel of judgment meets them. And the angel of judgment pulls out the sword against Moses. And is going to kill Moses. And his wife jumps in. Takes a sharp stone and circumcises their son. And so the angel disappears and lets them go. Theologians have, have boggled their minds over what does this mean? Oh, here's God trying to kill somebody. That's what God will do. God will tell you what to do and then he'll kill you. Yeah, let's serve him. That's not what's happening at all. Moses already knows and has known for over 40 years that he's an Israelite. What was the sign of the covenant that God gave Abraham? Circumcision. Is Moses circumcising his kids? No. Why not? Well, it might hurt the little darling. His wife apparently knows enough about it, so that when the angel shows up, she pulls out the sharp stone. 
She's mad about it. Now, I, personally, I would rather have my children circumcised by an, a, a, a non-angry woman. I personally think that's why men are supposed to do the job, but, you know, whatever. Clearly, she knows enough about what's going on to realize, here's the answer. Well, why didn't Moses circumcise his own son? Why didn't Moses circumcise his son? If he knows, he clearly knows, she knows. Well, why not? Because he's trying to change the truth for the benefit of his own child. You remember the story of Samuel in the Old Testament? Samuel's the priest. Uh, not Samuel, Eli. Eli's the priest. Eli's the one that Hannah goes to. And Eli speaks on behalf of the, of the Lord. And Samuel is then born to the woman. She hadn't had any children yet. She's, she's barren and, and then Samuel is born. You remember what the situation was with Eli? Samuel becomes the prophet of the land. How come? Because Eli the priest turned a blind eye to the wrong things of his son, the wrongdoings of his sons in their office in the, uh, of the priesthood. Why did he turn his eyes away? Why did he try to change the truth on behalf of his children? Folks, that's always been the greatest temptation to me. Because I know what the Bible says. I've taught my children, here's what the Bible says, here's what the Bible means, here's how it works. But then there's always this temptation. Oh, you're just being a little too hard. Just let them slide. You know what happens when you let them slide? Same thing that happened to Eli's children. They were destroyed. David didn't do too good with his kids until the last one. That's always the greatest temptation. But that's the thing that God never changes. God will not change the truth for you. He'll let you walk away. He'll let you do your own thing. He'll let you backslide. He'll let you reject him. But he will not change the truth for you. Even though he loves you so much that he's already blotted your sins out through Jesus' work. All you have to do is accept it. So God says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Then he says, because of that relationship, because of that right standing we have, verse 26, put me in remembrance. Remind me, in other words. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Can I ask you a question? Is God concerned about forgetting what he said? Why is he telling you to put him in remembrance? Why is he telling you to remind him? The Bible says God knows everything. It's impossible for God to forget something other than sins. He said, I will, your sins I will remember no more. That he forgets. He's not telling you to remind me of your sins. He's saying, remind me of my word. Why? Because he doesn't know what it is? No, because he wants to make sure that you know what it is. That's the argumentative prayer that Finney's talking about. That's the same thing that Luther did when he turned his face to the window or to the wall, looked out the window and started proclaiming and stating and, and, and quoting every scripture he could on health and long life and blessing. He's putting him in remembrance. He's putting him in remembrance. That's the kind of prayer that brings results. Folks, when you turn your face to the wall, it says, I believe God's word is, tr is true concerning my health. It means I believe God's word is true concerning my, my finances. It means I believe God's word is true concerning the promises he made regarding my children. It means my God, my, 
I believe the Word of God is true regarding my well-being in every area. It means you're turning your face away from circumstances, no matter how critical they are. You're turning your face to the God who is more than enough that all we have to do is believe in Him. Folks, the promises of God are true for you. They may not seem true. You may not be able to look at your bank book and say they're true. You may not be able to look at your body and say and, 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 and claim, well, I feel them working in my body, but they're true. And all you have to do is the same thing Jesus did for the Father in Mark chapter 9, and that is get you looking at what you see, what you can believe, rather than what you feel. Turn your face to the wall. The God that did miracles in the Old Covenant is still the same God today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that no matter how critical our circumstance is, no matter how difficult the situation is, no matter how last minute it seems to be, we thank you that you're the God that's more than enough. We thank you, Father, that your word is true. Okay, we're going to have to act on this. Why don't you stand up together with us? I'm going to have to lead you in the confession over this. And I want you to visualize yourself turning away from whatever your circumstance is and turning your face to the wall. I don't want you to see the circumstance. I don't want you to see the situation. I don't want you to see how you feel. I don't want you to see what the doctor said or, or what the, the, your boss said. I don't want you to see anything except God in this. And say this after me. I declare, I declare that God's word, is true. God's word is true. God's word says, God's word says that he will supply all of my needs, all of my needs. According, to according to his riches and glory. Therefore, Therefore I, declare I declare that it, my every need is met need in Jesus' name. The Word of God says that Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sickness. And with His stripes, I was healed. Therefore, I declare that I am healed from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. Every sickness and every disease must go from my body because God's Word is true. I declare, because the Word says so, that my children shall be mighty upon the earth. They shall walk in the ways of God. They shall find God's plan for their lives. And do it in Jesus' name. I declare that I am healed. I am prospering. I walk in peace. I have well-being in every area. Because God's word declares so. I declare, I declare that miracles work for me, miracles work for in, me. Jesus name. in Jesus' name. Lord, we bless you. We magnify your name. We thank you that the truth of your word is working for us. You said, Father, that if we would call unto you, you would answer us and you'd show us great and mighty things. You said, Father, that you would order our steps. You said, Father, that when we fall, you'd raise us up. You said, Father, that nothing, no weapon formed against us would prosper. You said, Father, that you would lift us up out of the dust and prosper us. We declare, Father, that your word is true. We declare that's exactly what you're doing on our behalf. We declare in Jesus' precious name. That we are healed, whole, prospering, and walking in victory in every area of life. We declare that we can't go under because we are upheld by the right hand of your righteousness. 
In Jesus' precious name. We declare it so. We believe it, Father. And we're trusting in you. We see nothing but you. Not our circumstance. Not our feelings. Not our situation. We see nothing but you and the truth of your word. We see your promise come to pass in our lives. In Jesus' precious name. We worship you, Father. You're so good to us. We thank you. No matter how it looks, you're working. You're at work in our lives. You're turning things around. You're lifting us up. Oh, Father, we bless you. We love you. We worship you. We magnify your name. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. That's how you put the greater one to work, folks. You turn your face to the wall. You turn away from your circumstance and turn your eyes to the truth of the word. Yeah, but, but I, I, Pastor Mike, can I have a vision? Could Jesus just appear to me and make it change? What do you need Jesus to appear to you for? You've got the word of God that promises you victory. See, when you look for something other than the word, it means you're not looking to the word. Yeah, but if God could just make me feel like it was going to work. No. It doesn't matter what it feels like. God didn't tell Isaiah, now go back and tell Hezekiah, because you feel better, it's going to go, it's, everything will be fine. Hezekiah didn't change his feelings. He changed his belief. He changed what he was looking at. It's the word that puts you over, folks. It's not your feelings. It's not this sense that God is here. You know, folks, I've got to tell you something. The most spectacular things that I've ever had God do for me was because there was trouble down the road. The most spectacular leadings I've ever had from the Lord, when I had Him speak to me in an audible voice, or what at least seemed to me to be audible, nobody else was there, so I don't know if it was or not. But when I've had Him speak to me in the most spectacular ways, it was because there was trouble coming down the road. You know what I've learned from that? I'm well satisfied with the inward witness. I'm well satisfied just to stand on the truth of the Word. So many times people are looking for visions, they're looking for voices, they're looking for prophecies. Not me. Because that's always meant trouble down the road for me. And I needed those spectacular things to hold me steady in the middle of the trouble. I'm fine without the trouble. I'm not believing for it. I'm going to have enough trouble without believing for it. I'm certainly not going to look for something other than the Word. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Word is always enough to those that will turn their face to it. Well, let's thank him one more time. Father, we bless you. We thank you. We worship you. We magnify your name. We rejoice in the truth of your word. In Jesus' precious name. Say it with me. Victory is mine. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us this evening for prayer school at 5 and healing schools at 6. And happy Father's Day.